Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, the Course Health series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So in this episode of the Course Health series, I'm speaking with Dr. Karen Mon Engbredsen about her chapter 11 titled Reflections on the Clinician's Role in the Clinical Encounter. Karen is a Gestalt psychotherapist working in private practice in Norway and her doctoral research was on medically unexplained symptoms with a particular focus on burnout. And she's published a series of papers from her PhD including Suffering Without a Medical Diagnosis, a critical view of the biomedical attitude towards persons suffering from burnout. She's published the paper Burned Out or Just Depressed, an existential phenomenological exploration of burnout. And her most recent paper is titled Out of Chaos, Meaning Arises, the lived experience of rehabituating the habitual body when suffering from burnout. And many of her papers are open access and I've linked them in the show notes. So in this episode we talk about her journey into Gestalt psychotherapy and the congruence of her clinical role with dispositionism. We talk about burnout and how it's been treated in a reductionist way with the attempt to reduce it to depression. And we talk about her experience interviewing participants for her doctoral research who were experiencing burnout and how they felt about such a simple reduction of their meaning and of their situation. And we talk about her experience of working within different paradigms such as positivism, constructivism and the phenomenological paradigm. And we talk about how she sees any therapeutic process as a function of the relationship between the interacting therapist and patient and their common field as a whole. We speak about the important role clinicians have in the clinical encounter and the zone of intersubjectivity where meaning and causal stories are co-constructed. And finally, Karen has some suggestions for those of us who are not psychotherapists, but would like to adopt a more embodied relational understanding and approach to our clinical practice. So this was another really enjoyable core self-discussion with someone who has integrated dispositionist theory with existing research and practice theories, namely existential phenomenology and constructivism. And this episode offers a real insight into the utility and compatibility of causal dispositionism for person-centred clinical practice for all forms of healthcare, not just psychotherapy. So I bring you Dr. Karin Mon Engbredsen. Karin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So on this episode, we're going to speak about the chapter that you wrote for the Course Health book, which was chapter 11, titled reflections on the clinician's role in the clinical encounter. And so for me, this chapter really brought together all the preceding chapters, but more so than the other chapters, it really emphasised, as the title of the chapter indicates, but really emphasises the role of the clinician and what they bring to the encounter, but also the interaction between what they bring and what the client or patient brings which hadn't really been talked about in the previous episodes. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So maybe you could start by telling us a bit about your, your background, your clinical background. Yeah, so 
I didn't start off with any clinical work at all. I was really fascinated by psychology as a subject very early on from the 70s, I think. And uh, I took some uh, programs at the University of Oslo in uh, primary and intermediate subjects in psychology and also business administration, which um, made up for my bachelor's uh, degree. And I used this uh, education that I got to uh, work as a consultant within corporate business, supervisor for management groups. And this was during the 90s. And uh, in, during this period, there was a lot of reorganization within big international companies. And the new best word was public management. So you had to sort of reorganize, restructure the organization to sort of gain more profit. So that was what they were aiming for. So in this work I had, my work uh, was observing management groups because there was a lot of conflicts going on in these organizations due to all these reorganizing things. And I think there was a lot of tension between those people working there. I held the license, my company held the license from uh, Petwaite International, New Rackham's very popular learning programs, how to communicate in a very, very professional way to really be able to listen to what others say and making conclusions, make everything you, the, the teamwork would be benefiting from these learning programs in a way. So in this situation, I was observing these people, talking about their projects, uh, what was going on in their organization between them, conflict stuff, sort of things. And I was really just up to be a detached observer, I would call it, because uh, I was very much aware of all those emotions that were lying under what they were talking about. But I was just going to give them feedback on how they really, or, or the categories that Nirakam uh, put every conversation into. It was sort of giving information, it was summarizing, it was uh, testing, understanding, those sort of categories. And I think they were very superficial for me when I was listening to them. But um, I had to stick to the to the licensee agreement and not uh, sort of bring any of the emotional stuff into this uh, feedback I gave them. So just to get a bit of a picture about what being a detached observer meant practically. And, and so is it the case you were at the workplace literally observing people's interactions and not trying to infiltrate your values or thoughts or who you are into the the workplace, but let it just play out in front of you and try and capture some objective portrayal yeah. of that reality. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And and I also think that uh, these people, I think I'm very sensitive to others uh, picking up what is going on beneath the surface in a way, I think. So I sort of was very aware of how they struggled in a way to uh, try to be professional and really try to do what they were being told in a way, I think. And, and I 
think it was very difficult to stay off <laughs> and not <laughs> sort of interfere with what I was also observing unspokenly in a way. Yeah. It raises the questions whether even being detached and dispassionate and an objective observer is even possible. You know, even you being there and in the workplace mm. and you're part of that, that, that setting in a way and you might influence them unknowingly or tacitly. Yeah. And that is, uh, I think, the first time I was really aware of that I was in the field with them in a way. And I think that was also very obvious because um, at the same time, I was also taking courses in Gestalt supervision. So that was not a clinical education. It was uh, Gestalt used as an approach to give feedback on uh, people's uh, teamwork. Okay. And I was um, uh, not giving these, uh, or I didn't apply this approach in the management groups in corporate business at first. It was first in the healthcare system because they were much more into being aware of the feelings more easily being available, I think, to uh, to talk about their feelings. So so I used, uh, I applied this, uh, this uh, approach for several years with the, with the medical uh, stuff, I think, and they really appreciated what I did. So I was really aware of these two different worlds I was in. And I think that also made me very much think what was the most valuable mm. for me, what was most me in a way. Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, there's, there's lots of questions I'd like to ask. One is looking back now at that original kind of licensed learning that you were involved in by the your company was it informed by behaviorism was that the was that the theory yes. there was a theory which underpinning that but this idea that you yes. can just observe people's behavior objectively and derive meaning or data from that interaction absolutely so that never sat well with you that didn't seem to fit you didn't feel comfortable adopting that sort of view even early on it sounds like no i <laughs> I'm not quite sure if I had really understood what was happening if I hadn't been in touch with the Gestalt approach. Because I think those two approaches stuck up against mm. each other, made it really clear the difference I felt between the two of them. Yeah. Maybe now's a good time to give a brief kind of working definition or summary, as you see it, of Gestalt. What is Gestalt mean in the context that you're using it? I think uh, Gestalt is very much into the humanistic tradition. And with all that, uh, with all what that uh, applies, I think, I think seeing human beings as human beings, being in the world, and they sort of construct their own meaning uh, or their own knowledge because being in the world also is the phenomenological construction that which is part of gestalt which i think says something about how i am sort of born into the world and also part of the world at the same time so i'm not uh, making any meaning alone in isolation because in this um, phenomenological field there are 
always, I'm, I'm always part of this field together with other mm. human beings. And we co-construct what makes meaning for us in, in a conversation, in a dialogue, mm. I think. And there it is the relational stuff, which I've uh, sort of said the uh, boober was part of in my chapter 11, where we are sort of relationally being part through a dialogue more so mm. than sort of being an it, it relation to each other where I'm not a subject, I'm a, a, an object <laughs> in a way. So, so that is also part of the Gestalt approach. And I also think uh, the humanistic approach are very much into not being a detached observer. It's more like being there as a human being. So I think all these things are very related or interrelated, hmm. I think. And also we have the field theory that is also connecting into all this other stuff because we exist in a field of interrelations with other people. We are all the time in a complex field where there are a lot of factors interacting and we can't go out of that because we are part of it, either we will or not, I think. I completely agree. And once you adopt this co-constructive position, then, and, and you, you take the view that, that sense and meaning is this co-construction and is, is developed or built from the interaction between you and the, the other individual, then you've got to begin to take notice or be interested in what you're building, what your contribution to that construction is. So hence you've got to be interested in your own values, your own beliefs, Absolutely. your own emotions, and that intersubjective zone, if you like, by which these these things develop. Absolutely. So, so this is uh, this way of making meaning is not meaning. We we don't find knowledge or create knowledge. I think it's co-constructed in a way. And and then the, then we are two parts, sort of, uh, in the intersubjectivity. And in this intersubjectivity, I also think there is a lot of emotions going on because we are emotional persons, and that is also part of the of the phenomenological dance taken by Merleau-Ponty, amongst others, where I think we are whole mm. persons. We are in the world with our bodies, and our bodies have the ability to, to sort of be touched and touch others in interaffectivity. Because when I am in contact with my effects and I'm talking to you, about effects that are sort of within me, I suppose that you can feel something of what I'm saying. And, uh, and that is what I think makes a very much different situation when we are talking and sort of being whole persons with the whole body, the mind, everything. Yeah. It's that embodied relational interaction. Yes. Mm. That's a, it's a lovely summary of, of your clinical but also your theoretical journey as well if you like and so maybe you could tell us how you became aware of cause health and how you came into contact with dispositionalism and also I'm interested in in the fit between your 
constructionist or phenomenological approach and position and how dispositionalism seems to to work? Uh, I was, this is six years ago, I was at the university where I met Rami and I have just embarked on the doctoral program and another colleague of, of mine uh, suggested that I should contact Rani because Rani held Philosophical Fridays meeting. So she had atten- <laughs> attended that meeting. I wasn't aware of that. So so I phoned Rani and said, hello, um, I want to talk to you. I think uh, I heard some interesting things about you. And we agreed to meet for a short lunch. I suppose that should be about 30 minutes, taking a cup of tea and a croissant. And then Rani started to tell about her philosophical views and the the dispositional stuff she was in the middle of and medical complexity and everything. And it really hooked me. So I was really <laughs> so engaged in that conversation. So we were sitting there. I don't think we ate the croissant. <laughs> we sort of talked and talked for three hours, I think. And I told her about my project, what I was just starting to uh, sort of sniff a little bit on. <laughs> it's, it wasn't very ready at that time. And she said that she would really want to have me on the project as one of the core team members, as a doctor, uh, the PhD student in a way. I think this uh, agreement we did then, six years ago, has been so very, very fruitful for my work and also really as a human being, because I think we have had so much fun in, uh, in this project. And I was introduced to, to this network of people and I had the opportunity to present my project, my research and uh, getting feedback on the work I did. So I think it was really so, uh, it was really contributing to the work I did, I think. Mm. I went to some of the Course Health conferences and just the, yeah, I mean, the speakers, but the audience. <laughs> so to be able to present, to present your work mm. and to get some critical, you know, critical feedback on that work and testing some of your ideas and, and thinking must have been really helpful as a doctoral student, particularly going into writing the thesis and subsequent viva. Yeah, I was just thinking about uh, one episode when you when you uh, mentioned that because I I think it was in Lisbon I think it was and uh, I was uh, presenting the doctoral project the interview person that I sort of presented because that was all about burnout and she said to me when I interviewed her that this uh, situation I'm in now. It's just come out of the blue. So I can't understand anything because I've got, uh, I've done everything right. I've taken a break. I have feel tired and I really have listened to my body what I need. And we started to, uh, when I started to sort of get more of a history, I was able to put a vector model. And that was what I was presenting in uh, this, uh, uh, the session where that guy at the back row was sort of saying to me, but you are a phenomenologist, Karen. 
So we don't talk about causation. <laughs> and I wasn't prepared for that at all because I, I've always been thinking of if-then experiences. If I do that, I over time will know this will lead to this happening. And I think this is what we do all the time, I think. You're quite right. I think was I think it was one of the episodes with, with Rani where it was also a it was a moment for me when she said that and possibly Eleanor as well, that qualitative work, whichever you know methodology you're using, contributes to that causal knowledge. And if you read the textbooks around or the literature around qualitative work, almost intentionally they separate themselves from those causal claims. They say, listen, yeah, that's the the role of positivism. We're not interested in addressing cause and effect relationships. And even in some of the literature around grounded theory is the methodology which I have a bit of an interest in. When you read definitions of positivist theory, it's very much about addressing cause and effect relationships, explaining phenomena, whereas interpretive interpretivist theories look to understand, they look to give context, but they're very clear that it's not about causation or finding causal data, if you like, but Rani's tipped it upside down, or Rani of the Cause Health Network or group, including yourself, which is kind of radical, if you think about the traditional views of these methodologies. Mm, absolutely. I was really, when I stood there, I think I was in a way feeling that I cursed in the church, <laughs> taking up the, the, the causation stuff. But But I think to be able to to help my clients, because I think this emotional stuff is very much tacit stuff. It's really under the surface. And I think when, you can take as an example, I meet uh, very often clients that have relational problems. And I think that is when we start sort of talking about this, uh, it very often comes to the fore that they have felt being not seen or heard during childhood and abuse, of course, and a lot of other gruesome stuff I think people are exposed to. So, so I think um, this emotional stuff that are too difficult to contain when you are a toddler, they are sort of being deflected. So they don't become spoken until I think when I start to talk uh, to these clients of mine in the sessions, I try to to get an understanding of what how they are emotionally influenced in their relationship with their pers- their uh, relatives, their other friends in in their uh, context of their lives. I think there's two things I'd like to talk about. One is the the core interest of your clinical work, which is and your doctoral work, which is around burnout. And it'd be quite nice using burnouts as an mm. example of how dispositionist theory can move beyond a simple reduction to depression that often burnout is is labeled as. So maybe tell us a bit about what burnout is and maybe how it's traditionally conceived through the biomedical 
lens, but also how the view that dispositionless has on burnout and what it, how it helps us understand the complexity of it. Mm. I start with trying to say something about what burnout is. Uh, and I think that is a very debated case, I think, because I've read a lot of articles. Uh, some of these persons or researchers are just <laughs> saying that burnout does not exist. It is just depression, full stop. But when I have been, uh, after the management period, uh, when I was working uh, in these organizations, I, I managed to burn myself out also. So, so I got that experience. I was really loving the work I did, but it became too much. It was traveling all the week and I was really loaded with work. So I experienced that my body said, stop, this is not anything you should, you should take a pause. You should really lie down for a moment and, uh, and rest. And I think uh, when I've uh, started to work clinically, that was about uh, 2000, there was a, a lot of people that came to me because of their work situation. And they told me if they were so really, really tired. And I think this uh, was uh, something that I really wanted to dig into because I could recognize something for myself. And I really wanted to know what was their side of it in a way. And I think they came from their GPs with a diagnosis of depression. And they didn't felt that was the right diagnosis at all. So they were very, very frustrated, several of them. And that is also what my, the, the thesis, uh, the interviews uh, I did related to the, to the thesis, the project. They didn't agree with the doctor at all that they were depressed because they was really so distressed because they didn't manage to do what they had been able to do before. They really loved their work. They were really so much wanting to be back there, to be in that situation and be able to do what they had managed before. But their bodies sort of stopped them because they didn't have energy to do anything of what they wanted to do. And that was when they came depressed, I think, because they wasn't able to, to do what they want to do. And that was what the medical doctor picked up, I think, because burnout is not mm. a medical diagnosis. And so, so given that, that whole system view, if you like, or whole person view of burnout, how can we use or how, how did you use dispositionalism to give a, a much more textured in-depth, contextual view of burnout so it's helpful for your clinical practice? So in, in this conversation, this dialogue with the clients, I'm listening for what is uh, related to both their context, their psychological and their biological context in a way. Because they, in burnout, there is uh, a lot of physical symptoms, a lot of physical symptoms, which I think is something the doctor is supposed to deal with. But, but I think for me as gestalt psychotherapist, I am really so convinced that our bodies 
are able to tell us something about how we are and what is the problem and everything. Because I think the body, in a way, knows what we need. So taking the vector model into the clinical session, starting to sort of draw uh, vectors for and against tipping, that that was uh, really nice for, I've got some good feedback on that because they have been able to see more of how their whole situation are affecting them or affecting how they feel, I think. So, so I think that also has uh, made me being able also to give feedback, uh, emotional stuff, because emotional stuff are also part of this, uh, this vector model. From early childhood, for instance, what they have experienced, episodes that are standing out, that they can recognize some feelings they are aware of in the here and now, that sort of are flashbacks in a way, feelings that they can recognize from other situations early in their lives, which I think will affect these people in the context here and now. So bringing these to the fore, I think uh, these are causal mechanisms that it's possible to to address together with these clients to, to let them see how they are influenced by their total situation, I think. In terms of using the vector models, do you draw it with them or do you send them away to draw it themselves or do you draw it for them? What's How does the vector drawings feature in, in the clinical interaction? It's in the clinical session. Uh, I think this is co-construction of, uh, of meaning, uh, the client's meaning of his or her situation. And what I am grasping as a meaning from my stand, standing point or my point of view as a clinician, because I think I also have the theoretical background to sort of think something uh, about what this is all about, but still being able to be a human being with them. And that is what I'm also thinking that dispositionalism is contributing to uh, to my clinical work, that I'm much more aware of being co-constructing this shared meaning mm. of the both of us, the clients and myself as a therapist. Maybe we can move on to, I suppose, the, the core aspect of your chapter, which is, well, the clinical interaction, but specifically kind of what the the role of the, the clinician in, in that co-construction or in that construction of a causal story via dispositionalism so perhaps you can tell us and you've got some lovely quotes or some questions which you pose in your chapter which clinicians should be thinking about such as you know how important is my role within the clinical encounter and you ask the question how might the clinician influence the encounter in positive or negative ways and maybe just say something a bit about about those questions what prompted you to to think about them and why should clinicians think about them when I was interviewing these uh, eight persons uh, for the doctoral uh, project, I heard they saying how they felt ignored or not heard by the clinician and also by the, the social service persons. And that was really something that I 
thought was really essential to what they experienced or, or how they sort of felt worse and also how these meetings was really making them worse, the situation worse. And then I started to reflect on how do I want to be met by other persons? And then I previously also tried to, to dig out what the philosophical roots uh, of Gestalt psychotherapy is. So I was uh, thinking of all these things uh, like humanism, uh, the, the constructivist perspective, phenomenological, existential phenomenology, by reflecting on the difference between what they have experienced during those medical meetings and the meetings with the social security system. And I've got feedback from them when, or during the interview that they really felt so heard and seen during the interview. So, so that was also the feedback I got from them that I thought uh, when I listened back to, to those uh, recordings I, I did and transcribed all those uh, pages, <laughs> those hours, it was about 100 hours with uh, transcriptions. Or, or recording. It was a. It was really a, a heavy load of very, very much information. I think. So, so I think this was the relationship, or how do we want to be encountered? That really stood out from the context in these interviews. It's um. Oh, again, we're off topic, but it's fascinating when you're doing that qualitative interview. You really are listening, aren't you? I mean, of course, we're always listening in clinical practice, but I think the minute you're interested in someone's perspective, their meaning, how that meaning arises from your interaction, you're listening out for every single word. And so I'm not surprised that they really felt listened to. They've probably never been listened to as much as that you know, during your your doctorate and probably will never be listened to by anyone, even a therapist. But I think that qualitative work really it's a skill which I think translates so well to clinical practice which maybe some of the other quantitative methods don't naturally translate to to clinical practice as well I would say. Mm. So so in these interviews when when I sort of listened to the recordings afterwards when I was transcribing their words their meanings I was so taken by the, the, the emotions that I felt that I had to hold back in the interview with these people. So that was also, that also became very clear to me when I'm um, seeing clients, I will be really moved and, and sort of holding back my own stuff to really be listening to uh, hear their side of it. That is something that was very came uh, very to the fore when or during the listening of uh, these recordings did you feel that as a as a therapist clinician doing research there was probably some instinct in you to therapize during those qualitative interviews but obviously the relationship is quite different there's an ethical kind of context there which is a bit different or quite different to the clinical relationship that you might have Absolutely. And I was very aware of my role as an interviewer. 
but also as a person. So, but this is the re- reflexive side of it, I think, being able to being with the other, but not stepping over to the other side. It's not about empathy. It's about being there and holding back my own stuff and sort of giving feedback without sort of intruding my own stuff on them. Not crying with them. Yeah, but I did that when I listened to the recordings. That was for several months I I sat there uh, transcribing these interviews and there, there was so much awful, really so much awful ways of being treated by the medical system that I really felt so sorry for them. So I was doing my crying in private when I translated this. And I also had my supervisor then to uh, sort of sort of share uh, my feelings. Yeah. So I think that the, the last couple of things I'd really like to explore is, uh, the first one is, I suppose the the outcome sounds like a very quantitative expression, but adopting for you a, or incorporating dispositionism in your clinical work with clients, what does that offer you? What does that give you that maybe previously you, you, you kind of didn't have within your within your clinical vision or your kind of therapeutic lens? What does it how does it practically help you work with clients? You talked about the vector model. I, I just wonder if there's anything else you want to add to that. What I became very much much more clear of was how affects interact in the context that we're part of, in the field we are part of. So being embodied subjects, I think we always have our feelings as part of what we are sharing in the intersubjective field with other persons. And I think being more aware of how these affects could be seen as causal mechanisms that affect us. And and by having a name for that or a notion to sort of reflecting on, I think that has helped me to be more able to reflect together with the with the clients what the causal mechanisms might be in relation to emotions. Because there are a lot of traumatized people, and I think these emotions, tra- traumatizing can be very differently. It could be a minor, minor episode, and it could be a massive episode. It's all this, uh, in the scale. I think there, there are a lot of traumas, small traumas, big traumas. And I think these traumas sort of impact very much, influence our relationships in the here and now. So being able to look for causal mechanisms. So maybe you could tell us a bit about how that deeply reflexive position that you you hold relates to dispositionalism in your practice. When taking a reflexive position, we interact as human beings with other human beings. In this position, we have the power to influence each other and create positive outcomes to the process, I think. As such, we are mutual manifestation partners for the outcome of the process, which is an emergent phenomenon 
By this, I mean uh, that the, the outcome of the therapeutic process is more than just the sum of my understanding and the client's understanding of his or her situation. Yeah, that really nicely puts in its... So actually, when I, when I was saying that what the therapist brings to the encounter, that's not really going far enough because it's actually, it's the interaction of both the therapist, it's that intersubjectivity that you talked about. That's the partnership, isn't it? That's the mutual manifestation partnership. That's the, where that stuff happens. <laughs> yeah. And this is also, I think this relates very much to the transference and counter-transference processes because we do really influence each other, although we perhaps are not aware of it all the time. Karin, what would you like readers of your chapter to take away? Uh, I think, um, in my opinion, a relational approach is independent of the profession you have. So it means that everybody can sort of take home message from this chapter, I think. As I already have suggested in this chapter, I hope this text, as well as all the other chapters of the book, will stimulate further reflections and discussions related to how you want to encounter your patients. Yeah, yeah, and and I think finally, thinking about listeners that that aren't psychotherapists or or, or aren't in that 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 field of kind of, for want of a better word psychological therapy or psychological care but thinking about I know general practitioners or physical therapists or nurses all the other healthcare professionals that might be listening that want to take a more relational approach to their practice and incorporate some of the ideas in the chapter but not don't necessarily have the the time or the work setting or support to fully dive into this approach what would be some of the messages or advice or suggestions that you might have for them? I think uh, how you relate or choose to relate to your patients is very much due to the norms, attitudes and values you have. And I think this is mirroring the values you have, the attitudes you have as a professional. I think that will be influencing how you will meet the other, the patient. So I think being a human being, we are human beings, all of us. So trying to be more feeling or a passionate person without sort of stepping over to the other side, being just passionate, but perhaps to be able to, to hold the both, both the theoretical, the clinical, knowledge you have as a professional, but also taking a more humanistic approach towards the other. I think that is something I think will help the patient. That's wonderful, Karen. Thank you so much for sharing your chapter 11 with us. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain and I'll see you next time.